our nameless barrister has said that there's one of these demons snarling at him. Doesn't seem to be going well for him. He's already been torn open once. They seem to want to get at him again. They're gnashing their teeth. It's not going well, and yet he's trying desperately to gain the good graces of Virgil and Dante as they walk through hell. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast, Walking with Dante. We are in Inferno, the first canticle of Dante's masterwork comedy, the first third of Dante's masterwork comedy. We're in Canto 22, and we are at lines 94 through 117, coming toward the back of it. I wish we could do this in larger chunks, but... Man, the episodes would just get giant. So we've got a nameless parroter. He's been hauled out of the boiling pitch. He's already mouthed off about two other barriters in that pitch, naming names. We talked about that in the last episode. And so we're going to go on with what happens to him and the wily game that he's about to play. If you're just dropping in here to the podcast, Walking with Dante for the first time, you are welcome to play along with us. But let me tell you that there are 131 episodes behind us, so you might want to go back and catch up. You can take it at a sprint to get back up here, but don't worry. It's a quantum walk. You can be on it at any place, at any time, and we're all together. But we here are in Canto 22 at lines 94 through 117 of Inferno. The head honcho turned to Butterfly Imp, who was rolling his eyes up in his head for a strike, and said, Get back in line, you filthy little bird. The quaking sinner started up again. If you'd really like to see and hear from some Tuscans or Lombards, I can make them get over here. Just make these evil claws stand a little to the side so the guys won't be terrorized by the demons holding onto their vendettas. Then I, sitting at this very spot, I'm just the one who can make seven of them come when I whistle. That's how he do it when any of us gets out of the pitch for a bit. At this, badass dog raised his snout and shook his head, saying, What a base trick he thought up just so he could dive back in. Then the guy, who was full stocked with big plans, replied, I have to be the basest of the base if I brought more suffering on one of my own. Harlequin couldn't hold back and, as opposed to the other demons, said to the guy, If you take the dive, I won't just come at you at full gallop. I'll beat my wings to get over the pitch. Let's pull back from the cliff's edge, conceal ourselves behind the bank, and we'll see if all by yourself you're any match for our might. funny voices in the passage itself and the little game that's about to get played about who can catch who on the side of the boiling pitch. This isn't a very complicated passage. It's just an interesting passage for several things that Dante the Poet pulls off in it. So let's just start at the top and talk about the head honcho and butterfly imp. The head honcho, of course, is Barbariccia, 
or curly beard, that one who has been put in charge of the decurion. And he turns to this far fellow, fellow, <laughs> the butterfly imp, as I've translated, who was rolling his eyes back at his head for a strike. I mean, this guy's almost in ecstasy. You just get this picture of almost ecstasy as the violence is about to strike. I mean, this is really some kind of 50 shades of gray kind of stuff. And he, the, Barbara Riccia, Curly Beard, says, get back in line, you filthy little bird. Bird, because these demons have wings, because they're like bats. What's interesting here is that get back in line, fati in costa, that he says, it's very vulgar. It is very street language in Florentine. It's not proper Florentine by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, many of the commentators use this fati in costa to, to represent the way Dante warps Florentine to get it to a place where it sounds kind of vulgar and dirty and not exactly right. This is something you'd say to an underling. Let's say that, you know, you were making people queue up for something and you were the guard. Let's say you're the guard at a museum and you're making people queue up and you were just, as my husband Bruce and I like to say, you are heady with bureaucratic power and people are starting to get out of line a bit and you want them to get back in line. Fatim Costa. Get in there. Get in the place. It's it's very wow sharp and very street-like. So I think that's important to notice because the demons, again, they do not speak proper Florentine, and that's going to lead us straight into a question of who speaks what in the next few lines. The Quaking Center, our barrator, our nameless barrator, again, I prefer him to be nameless, not named, as many of the commentators do, our nameless Barrator starts shaking. <laughs> I would too, with all these grappling hooks around me. And he turns clearly away from the demons and back to Virgil and Dante. Listen, he knows where his bread is buttered. His bread is buttered with these two walking through hell. His bread is not buttered with these demons. <laughs> Instead, he's turning back to where he can get something. At first, it seems to pay off, and then it doesn't. What he says is if you'd really like to see in here from some Tuscans or Lombards. Notice that he hears their dialect. He knows what Virgil, Mantua, Lombardy, and Dante, Florence, Tuscany, are speaking. You know, two things. One, a good grifter speaks the language of his marks, or I shouldn't be so sexist, of her marks. A good grifter speaks the language of her marks. In this case, it's his. This guy understands the same thing. If you want to get something out of someone, you got to talk their language. So Virgil had just said, are there any Italians down there? Is there a Latino down there? Now this guy has narrowed it to Tuscans and Lombards, clearly hearing what they speak. And two, this is the first time we discover that Virgil is speaking in the Lombardy dialect. Virgil Wood, being from around Mantua, he does speak in the Lombardy dialect. This is going to become a thing later in Inferno, in Inferno 27, a thing. But when it's dropped there, people always act like it's a surprise. Oh, my gosh, Virgil speaks in the Lombardy dialect. What do you know? Because someone's going to point it out. But I always want to say, uh, look back at Canto 22. It's clear that somebody already hears Virgil speaking Lombardy. This is an intriguing problem for the poem. Why doesn't Virgil then? And speak actually in the Lombardy dialect. Why does Dante the poet have Virgil speak Florentine when clearly around him what they're hearing is the Lombardy dialect? And it would be the same as if you wrote a novel 
I don't know, let's say you wrote a novel that started in 1930s Germany and people were getting out and you were going to write this novel in English. I doubt that you would write it in various German dialects as they try to run for their life out of Germany. You would write it in English because you're writing for an English audience. Same here. Dante's writing for a Florentine audience. It's kind of the deal we make, the, to use Coleridge's phrase, the willing suspension of disbelief we use in order to make a story happen without too much trouble. My gosh, you wouldn't want to have to live through this thing with a thousand footnotes in Lombardy as a Tuscan, would you? No, I don't think you would want to. It's like trying to read Dostoevsky when he inserts all that French into the text. And so, you know, translators leave the French as the French because it's the French in the Russian text from Dostoevsky. And yet you're always having to flip to the back to say, oh, what, 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 if you don't speak French? It would be like that kind of level of irritation. And Dante solves it the way most writers do by having everybody speak the same dialect. Okay, but what else can we say about this nameless baroter? You'll notice that he tells the truth. He says, you know, I can get people up here. I know how to do this. And if you just make these Malabranca, these evil claws, this band of demons, the Malabranca, the evil claws, if you just make them stand aside a little bit so the guys won't be terrorized by the demons holding onto their vendettas, we're coming back to that, then I, sitting on this very spot, I'm just the one who can make seven of them come uh, when I whistle. That's how we do it when any of us gets out of the pitch for a bit, which apparently is the truth. You know, the best way you grift is you start with the truth and then you kind of push it around to the side until you're lying. This guy starts out with the truth. Oh, this is how we do it. When one of us wants to get out of the pitch and hang around the bank, we, you know, we have a lookout whistle that we use so that we can all dive back in and whoever's on lookout has to get well, you know, we do it. I also want to call your attention back earlier to Evil Tale in Canto 21, because he too starts to tell the truth to Dante and Virgil. Oh, you can't go down that spoke you're going down because the bridge is down. He too starts telling the truth, but as we will discover, that truth slowly warps into a lie that he tells them. But that's all ahead of us yet. At this moment, all we can see is that this Barretter is doing the same thing that evil claw is doing. We don't quite know that yet. I just told it to you. That is starting out with the truth and ending up with a lie. And we discover, too, there's a second thing here, that there's some kind of perverted civic order here. I mean, it's made up of lookouts and people who do the whistling. and You know, everybody kind of gets out of the pitch and rests for a bit out of the boil. And then somebody's on the lookout. Somebody's got to be up there while I'm sitting on my rock or doing whatever I'm doing, hanging out at the edge of the boiling pitch. And they give the lookout and then we all jump back in or somebody gives the whistle and we know that it's free time to come out. There is a kind of civic order that happens here, whether it's lookouts or uh, a kind of uh, arrangement of how to conduct business in the pitch. Let's go back to that word vendetta. 
He says, just make these evil claws stand a little to the side so the guys won't be terrorized by the demons holding on to their vendette, in the Florentine vendette, their vendettas. Um, you can translate this as cruelty. They're holding on to their cruelty, holding on to their barbarism, holding on to their vengeance. You can translate this in a lot of ways. I just left it basically there as vendetta because, as you know, I think there is a vendetta theme that runs through Inferno. We've talked about this in previous episodes, and I think it's important just to leave the word here because this question of vendetta is going to become increasingly important in the pockets of fraud. And that it comes up here is a typical for me Dantean technique that he's setting us up for the big reveal. And there is going to be a big reveal about vendetta ahead of us. We've heard this word before. We've heard various people with their vendettas. We've heard how vendettas can destroy the social order. So here in a passage about people who are destroyed destroying the social order, the word vendetta comes up again. It's just important to point it out because it's going to come up big time ahead of us. So he makes his plea. He says, let me sit here by myself on the spot. You guys back up a little bit. I'll give the all clear and then they'll come out. I can get seven of them out, he says. Um, Some people think that that seven is a kind of uh, indeterminate number. Seven meaning a lot. I don't know. Why not make it seven? I can get seven of them to come up. Not just two or three, but seven. I like the I like the hubris of it all. Wow, seven of them to come up out of the pitch on the whistle. So that's what he says, but the demons don't at first buy it. At this, badass dog or cagnazzo raised his snout and shook his head saying, what a base trick he's thought up just so he can dive back in. Okay, badass dog is in on it. He knows. Look, this. Who, who believes this? Who believes this guy's just going to sit here alone on a rock and give a call? He's in on the motivation. And notice the guy says, the guy who's full stocked with big plans says, I'd have to be the basest of the base if I brought more suffering on one of my own. Who do you think I am, badass dog? Do you really think I'm that horrible of a person? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> that horrible of a person you're one of the damned in hell who do you think i am now you know what you have to be a pretty stupid demon to buy that (laughs) and yet and yet here they go they buy it i mean he comes out with it right i'm not so so bad as to bring suffering on one of my fellow sinners and somebody buys it harlequin that demon in medieval folklore that drags your soul to hell harlequin he, he couldn't hold back the passage says and opposed to the other demons so everybody everybody's with badass dog everybody's saying oh my gosh you know don't trust this guy come on harlequin says if you take the dive i won't just come at you at a gallop I'll beat my wings to get over the pitch. In other words, I will come at you at full blower. I, I'm not going to just run after you. I'm going to catch you in the dive because I got wings. So he says, let's pull back from the cliff edge to conceal ourselves behind the bank, and we'll see if all by yourself you're any match for our might. In other words, he takes him up on the game. He takes him up on on this play that this guy is making. Well, I should, we should just 
uh, look at this for a visual effect, the Malibolta are all sloping down, right? We started up at that first pouch, but then we came down the cliffside on Garion's back. We ended up at that first of the evil pouches with the pimps and seducers going in opposite directions and being whipped by horn demons. And then the whole thing, remember, is sloping down toward a central pit. So because the whole thing is on a slope, one side of the embankment on each side of the pouches is higher than the other side. I mean, the interior side on this side is higher up than the next side that leads to the sixth pouch. So it's sloping down. So basically what Harlequin is saying is if we back off a little along this ledge, it's sloped and he won't the the guys in the pit in the pitch won't be able to see us. We'll see if all by yourself you're any match for our might. This is a fantastic inversion. In fact, this is the biggest inversion of hundreds of inversions during this sequence amongst the Baraders. This is an inversion of Canto 21. Remember back in Canto 21, who was the guy who said, don't trust the demons? It was Dante. So Badass Dog is basically echoing Dante back from Canto 21. And remember, I said to you, what idiot would trust demons? And the idiot was Virgil. And remember, Virgil had this kind of overconfidence about the whole thing. Oh, I've done this before. I know this whole thing. Besides, they're not snarling at us. They're snarling at the sinners. Remember, we talked all about Virgil's overconfidence. What does Harlequin say? If you jump, I'm so fast with flight. I can get on my wings so fast that I'll catch you in the dive. Who's got overconfidence here? Harlequin. So this sequence is an inversion of Canto 21 between Dante and Virgil, although now it's between the demons. One who says, well, this is, this is a joke, right? And the other who says, no, 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 it's, it's really, it's true. And besides, anyway, we can beat him. <laughs> Overconfident, to say the least. So that's where the passage ends. Let me say one more thing about a small phrase inside the guy's responses. When Badass Dog says this is a base trick, you know, he's just going to jump back in, the text says, then the guy who was full stocked with big plans replied, I'd have to be the basest of the base if I brought more suffering on one of my own. It's that phrase, who was stocked up, full stocked with big plans. You notice that that's given away the game. The poet Dante decided right there to invoke dramatic irony. That is, the reader now knows something that the demons don't know. The reader knows this guy is going to try to trick them. I mean, the guy who was full stocked with big plans. And by doing this, the demons now become the focus of the action. By putting the dramatic irony onto the demons, we the reader now know something that the demons, or at least Harlequin, doesn't. And the other demons are persuaded by Harlequin's belief in his overconfidence. But we know that this guy is making a play. He was full stocked with big plans. My question, and I don't really have an answer to this question, 
is this a good or a bad thing? It's an interesting thing because by invoking what we now call dramatic irony, that is letting the reader know what the characters don't know, by invoking dramatic irony, we throw all of the focus and all of the action onto the characters and very little onto the reader's then continuing understanding of the character's development. Okay, fair enough. Maybe it's a good thing because, again, the passage moves toward the demons, but maybe it's a bad thing. Maybe Dante just plays his hand a little early because by saying this, he was full stocked with his big plans. Dante, the poet, robs the scene of its drama. We now know that this guy's going to make a play for escape. And we now know because of the inversion that's going on here that, in fact, this guy's going to escape. Indeed, that dramatic irony is a strange little bit. And I have to tell you, I stick on it every single time I get to Canto 22. I stick on it thinking, I know, don't kick me. Did our poet, our grandmaster poet, make a mistake and kind of deflate the balloon too fast? Or did our grandmaster poet direct our attention to the demons and wants our attention on the demons? And if so, why does a Christian poet want all of my narrative focus, all my readerly focus on demons? Then that doesn't seem like he's got himself in control of a Christian poem. It seems as if he's losing himself into the drama. Damn, I'm just never sure about this sentence. And I know, Dante, yes, I know, greatest work of Western literature. Yes, I know, fabulous poet. Yes, I know, genius. Yes, I know, far smarter than I. Don't kick me for any of this. But I just sometimes stumble on that phrase, full stock with big plans, because I think, ah, you gave away the game. If I were your editor, I'd cut that phrase. <laughs> I love the notion that I'm Dante's editor. If I were your editor, I'd cut that phrase because I'd tell you, no, 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 no. You're robbing the scene of its essential drama. And you're now making just the demons the focus of all the action and not instead the tension between the demons and this nameless barrator with Dante and Virgil in the background. To see how he gets away, you're going to have to come back to the next episode of Walking with Dante. He is going to make his big leap. You know it already. Of course, badass dog is right. But what happens is, in fact, all located on the demons. And the scene will descend fully into a drama of the demons, which brings up all kinds of interesting problems for our next episode. So subscribe, like this podcast. Please write a rating for it. That would be really good. I would most appreciate it. But mostly, I would appreciate your finding me on Twitter at Mark Scarborough, my own name. We can chat there about Dante. We can chat more about this episode. I'm so thrilled when those conversations erupt. Find me there and find me here next time on the next Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you real soon.